0: Of every living being, not just humans, of every living being. And so, and Krishna says that's really a requirement to, um, it's a requirement to make significant spiritual advancement. Krishna also says in the Bhagavad Gita, um, to achieve the highest love of God, the highest devotion, the highest bhakti, one must. Um, Treat everyone equally and fairly. Equality is actually a big deal in the Bhagavad Gita, as I point out in my book, which, uh, OK. Ad warning. So <laughs> just came out, explanation of Bhagavad Gita. But I mean, Krishna, for example, says, Pandita Samadarshana: those who are truly wise see everyone equally. So seeing everyone equally, spiritually, obviously materially, we're not all equal because I can run faster than anyone in this room. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, that was a joke. But, but actually, on the, on, the, on the spiritual platform, on the spiritual platform, where every living being is equal, every living being is equal, and, and that's, that's a big part of bhakti yoga, seeing everyone equally, and feeling compassion and love for everyone. And um, so yes, community. If I can say one more word on community. Can you started And that is, um, in a spiritual community, the more spiritual it is, the more the people will actually like each other in the community. Um, obviously, there are two significant realities in our lives. And the one is, we have a material body, we have a human body. And that is a big deal because, I mean, we live inside a human body. Even though we are eternal souls, we live inside a human body. And Krishna, there's a very interesting statement in Bhagavad Gita, I think it's 333, where Krishna says, um, Even an enlightened person, even a wise person will act in this world according to their own nature. And that, prakritin janti bhutani, creatures follow their nature. Nikaha king what will repression do? Meaning, of course, it will do nothing. So we have a human body, we have a human life, and we, in the name of spiritualism, if we neglect our own humanity, uh, we end up in, in trouble. As Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita, when he says, for example, that even though you're not the body, if you eat too little or eat too much, if you sleep too little or sleep too much, if you go to extremes in any kind of human activity, then you can't really practice spiritual life. And the word for that spiritual life there is there is yoga. So to practice spiritual life, you must be balanced. As we know, extremes are not sustainable, whether they're political extremes, yoga extremes, or any kind of extreme. And so Krishna himself advises us in the Bhagavad Gita to be moderate, to what the Greeks called the golden mean, the middle path, to, to be balanced in our human activities and to work in this world according to our own nature, whether someone is a poet or, or a, an engineer or you know, whatever you are. So we have that human side. At the same time, there is an ultimate spiritual fact of the matter and that is that we are all eternal spiritual beings and if you think about it logically you couldn't be otherwise because we all as christians playing in the gita as you can see i'm a gita thumper <laughs> the, uh, the buckle on the gita belt so <laughs> Krishna gives the example in Bhagavad Gita, Dehi no dehi komaram jovana, jara. That in this, Krishna says, Asmin dehi, in this body, we all have experience of komara, childhood, jovana, uh, youth, and jara, old age. For those of you who are interested in language, jovana uh, that's our English word, youth, or joven or in the Latin Sanskrit Joven and a jira, old age, from which we get words like geriatrics, and gerontology, and, and geritol, if you remember anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone's old enough to remember that the Ted Mack amateur hour, So <laughs> Who knew that Ted Mack was a Sanskritist? So <laughs> I
1: mean
0: anyone that laughed at that is dating himself. <laughs> um, so, So all of us, all of us understand. I mean, all of us we experience directly that I am the same person in 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 one sense that I was as a child. Obviously, my my ideas have changed, my body has changed, but in some very significant way, it's still me. And if I could refer here to uh, one of our early Bhakti yogis, Rene Descartes, the French philosopher, was a closet member of the Hare Krishna movement (laughs) without knowing it but Descartes Descartes did something very revolutionary in his time which is relevant to our self-realization so I'm going to explain that in the 1600s when Descartes lived uh, the world was still I mean Europe was still despite the Renaissance the Renaissance was definitely picking up speed and the 16th century you had the age of reason the rediscovery of the scientific method so things were People were really coming out of the dark ages, were out of the dark ages, but still, basically, it was a theocracy, or a so-called theocracy. It was like the the kingdom of Christ on Earth. And so Descartes said, and this this was very kind of revolutionary for his time, he said, what if I imagine that everything I think I know, including God, the soul, everything, what if I doubt everything, what if I say to myself, but I don't really know anything for sure. Everything I think I know could be wrong. And then he began to be called his meditations. He began his meditations in which he said, I'm going to just think and, and is there any way that I can overcome my doubts because it would be absurd not to give up certain doubts. In other words, is there anything I can know for sure? Now, the first thing he did was, this is very interesting, he recognized, and we, we need to you know, give a little round of applause to René Descartes, he realized that the ultimate center of knowing, the ultimate core of knowing, is your own consciousness. And, and to explain why that's important, if you compare Descartes to, say, Sir Francis Bacon, who was one of the father's, of the, uh, of the scientific revolution of the 1600s, for, for Bacon and for the other sci- so-called scientists, the, the center of, of knowing, of certainty, is out of the physical world. It's your material senses interacting with the material world. And that's ultimately the foundation of certain knowledge. And so Descartes was saying, because we use consciousness, whatever you do, whether you're thinking artistically or scientifically or philosophically. However you're thinking, you're doing so with consciousness. And therefore, you first have to understand what your own consciousness is. So that's that, you could say, that that move within, like to go inward instead of outward, is something which obviously is at the heart of the whole yoga tradition for thousands of years and uh, other places, actually. Uh, Like, for example, um, whoops, we would like you don't succeed, sue the people you're working with. <laughs> so in, in the in the Christian philosophical tradition, you get figures like Augustine of Hippo, who actually in interaction with some of the you could say the, the metaphysicians of, of Europe, the idea of going inward, not just going outward. But if you do, here's my point, if you do go inward, if you do look within yourself, Oh, oh, just to complete Descartes. What Descartes finally concluded was, there's one thing I cannot doubt. It's impossible to doubt. I would be a lunatic if I doubted it. And that is that I exist. Why? cogito ergo sum. I'm thinking about this, and, and therefore I must exist. So that certainty that I exist, and not simply as a body, because my body is changing, as Christian explains, I mean, the, I mean, the body I have now is not the body I had when I was 3 years old or 7 or seven, 16 or, or whatever. And so our bodies are changing constantly. Our bodies are changing constantly, and yet I know with certainty that I exist as a continuing person. And in fact, I know that better than I know anything else. That was Descartes' point. My knowledge that I exist as a conscious individual is the basis of knowing anything else. And so if you look inward, if you realize that, that the most certain knowledge you have is that you exist as a unique individual person, and yet your body is changing constantly, little shout out here to the Buddhists, that, uh, which, which was one of their main points, that everything is constantly changing, which Krishna also says the Gita, So that means you can't be the body. I mean, as much as you'd like to be your body, sorry, but it just doesn't work logically. Because we are continuing unique, individual conscious persons, yet the body's constantly changing. In fact, the elements that were of your body, like the skin, the flesh, the hair, I mean, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't even exist anymore. I mean, the stuff you had even like a few weeks ago, if so you look in the mirror, you know, speed Spiegel, on the above, that's the original German, mirror, mirror on the wall. Brother, the Brother Grimm, Brothers Grimm. So if you look in the mirror, if you look in the mirror and see your face, it's not even the same face you had several weeks ago. Literally. Because your skin is changing. And so we're obviously not the body. So um, so in a community to, to to gather with people who help you to, to remind you and you remind them. And uh, you discuss and you share and you have this uh, exchange of knowledge in other words self-realization is a team sport and even though and even though of course we have to preserve our individual integrity our individual personal life which is very important uh, ulti- ultimately self-realization is a team sport mm-hmm. so that's the uh... yes it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sounds like it's So worse. anything else?
0: Yes. Uh, sure. Uh, thank you.
2: Just for some clarity for myself, you write in your book. Um, Thanks for reading. 11, yeah, yeah, thank you it for it's reading. A great book. Uh, you say, speaking on a historical battlefield that is also pregnant with symbolic meaning, meaning. Krishna repeatedly tells Arjuna to conquer not only the military foes, and so on. Can you just explain to me what you mean by symbolic meaning?
0: Sure. Um, I first mentioned there that it's a real historical event. At the same time, um, all of us stand between two powerful forces, which you could say, you know, the, the force and the dark side of the force. Or the uh, the power of good and the power of evil, and obviously most people are not purely good, or most people are, And obviously there are very few truly evil people. Although some of them somehow enter politics, but <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is that um, as free beings, at every moment we're being challenged. We have to choose to do the right thing. For example, choose to be kind to people, or to neglect them, or to be unkind, to 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 help them, or to exploit them, and we have to choose between, for example, vanity and um, and humility. I, I sometimes make the point that there's philosophical atheism, and then there's psychological atheism. Philosophical atheism: someone says, "I, you know, I, I don't think there's any god, or I believe there's no god." That's philosophical atheism. Psychological atheism means I may be a philosophical theist, I may believe in God, but in my day-to-day life, I am very self-centered, which means psychologically I live as if I and not God were the center of reality. <laughs> and so in, in spiritual life, to really have the strength and the courage to give up my own self-centeredness and, and to really see myself as uh, someone who is meant to serve others and meant to serve God. Not in the sense of becoming an eternal butler or something in some divine mansion. Because as we know, the relationship with Krishna is very intimate and loving. But if, for example, if you have children, then you really, really need to see yourself as a servant of your children. someone or even in a relationship people enter into a relationship one really has to be dedicated to helping the other person there has to be a mutual dedication because as we know if there's not if people enter into a relationship or have children or take on public service or whatever and are really just thinking of themselves it's 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 very bad so um, yeah, so those are the two forces that we stand between and
1: that we have to choose between. And someone you lose. Maraj, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, pleasure to meet you. I'm personally grateful to you, because I believe you were very instrumental in Michael Maraj choosing to go back to school. Michael Maraj in Tamar Krishna was Oh, so Thank <laughs> you very <laughs> much yes. for that. And he, in turn, instructed me to go to SMU law school. So I feel like I, in many ways, I'm connected to him even more. So thank you. Um, I've been in the movement for 20 years. And my question is, how does one maintain the faith, if you will, if one sees that the orthodoxy deviates significantly from the orthodoxy? It's not prevalent, but instances. You mean hypocrisy? Ultimately, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, actually, I just wrote a
0: paper on this soon to be a major motion picture. (laughs) uh, I think we have to accept as a given that in any human undertaking, organization, institution, there will be a certain amount of hypocrisy, there will be a certain uh, there will be some people who rise to high positions but beyond their actual spirituality. I think, I, I think the his, history clearly shows that. And so, I think we have to do what is, what is so, sort of a utilitarian calculus here, in the sense that uh, as Prabhupada understood very well, there is a real unavoidable historical need a uh, slight redundancy, unavoidable need, a historical need for um, a, a spiritual institution. And whenever you have an institution, there will be a certain amount of foolishness. And so I think the calculation we have to make is, well, Kant, you know, the, or you could say, would the world be better without this institution? Or would the world be better if I were not part of this institution? And uh, in my own case, in my own life, I've thought about it. I think any sane person thinks about it at times. And, and I've, on, 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 for two reasons, I have concluded that I should work within the spiritual institution to make it better. Number one, because I owe it to my guru, Prabhupada because he gave his life to build a spiritual institution for no other reason than to help people. And I feel that I, and I know that if I came to him and told him, well, there's this problem and that problem, I know exactly what he would say. He would say, well, fix it. And and the second reason is that history shows that despite all of its inevitable silliness, spiritual institutions, religious institutions are needed Historically, they're needed to change the world. And uh, so religious traditions or institutions go through boom-bust cycles as much as economies do. So I mean, mean, here's a typical religious boom-bust cycle, which you find throughout history in every religion. You get a group of people, they're really sincere, they're really devoted, they want to help the world, and the public you know, a number of people in the public recognize their sincerity, their devotion, and help them. They give them donations, they, they, they all, you know, they sweep the church or some church floor. They, they help in different ways, and, 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 and the institution starts to grow. When it starts to grow, uh, suddenly you get, you know, say, people who are, I guess you'd call fat cats in the institution people who hold positions and because, precisely because the institution has grown, whenever you have a human organization, there's power to be wielded by the iron law of oligarchy, which is a sociological principle, that inevitably, when you have an institution, you know, a a relatively small number of people will actually manage it, that's just the nature of human organization. And so people have power, and and science shows that the more people have power, the more their empathy declines. And so inevitably, You get people, now not necessarily, you can have spiritual leaders who are so advanced or serious that in fact they they retain tremendous empathy. So it's not that it has to be this way. But if someone has power, even in a so-called spiritual institution, and they are not truly very advanced, they may just be good managers who follow the basic principles and so got positions. So if you have leaders who are not truly that advanced, then inevitably, their empathy will decline, and the iron law of oligarchy. They will start to think that their main duty is to consolidate and retain their own power, because only their holding power separates the institution from chaos and anarchy and collapse. So the more authority they have, the more uh, stable and safe the institution is, which is something you find in all human institutions. So, and, and so you get this corruption. You know, this is the bust. And then what happens is when people, the people in a particular spiritual religious tradition see that there's some hypocrisy going on, there's injustice, there's insensitivity, and so on, then they pull back. When they pull back, the institution starts to decline, and that can include, you know, the resources, human and financial resources going down. Finally, someone stands up and says, hey, we need to reform, we need to correct these things, we need to get back on track. And then, you know, in, in 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 the better cases, people hear the message, they start joining together, let's make this what it's supposed to be, let's get back to our spiritual basic principles, and let's, you know, walk the pure tongue. And so, and then when that happens, uh, you, you get a reform. And then, and then it's, a, it's a boom cycle again, and it goes on for a while, and then it's so successful that you start to get. So, so I think it's like, for example, if you have a garden, weeding is just perpetual. It's not that you know the once and forever weeding. Of course, I'm sure there's some world menacing uh, chemical company that wants to sell you some thing that will you know, take the weeds out forever. But, um, but in general, when you garden, that's just what it means to garden. And I mean, Lord Chaitanya in the, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita gives this famous example that all of us individually are gardeners, and the garden is our heart. And within the garden of the heart, we plant the seeds of love, the seeds of love of God, and then and the, and then weeds grow. Because as we start to advance spiritually, inevitably we become proud of our advancement. Because when one starts to make spiritual progress, we're still not completely there. So naturally, we become proud of our spiritual advancement. One can be proud of being a spiritual leader, which is a little contradictory. And so therefore, we have to constantly weed the garden and take out these. Because when you do well spiritually or appear to do well, people recognize you and praise you. And then you can actually be cultivating vanity and pride, and, and a spiritual practitioner can actually get to the point where what the real engine that's driving me in my spiritual practice is pride. Because the more, let's say, the, the more I perform spiritually or appear to be a spiritual leader, the more people love me, the more people give me donations. And you, know, you, you can actually cross a line where, unbeknownst to the uh, so-called saint, um, really a, a, a so-called spiritual leader can, can cross a line, and what's really motivating that person is, is just pride and vanity and even greed for money. I remember when I said at UCLA a long time ago and I studied the history of Japanese religion, and um, I, there was this one story I learned in class which I never forgot, it, was, it really shocked me, and that is the guy who sort of started Zen in japan uh what happened is he went to china because china for people in japan china was like the holy land you know if you were a buddhist and wanted to go to visit great masters you go to china india was kind of a you know it was too far (laughs) (laughs) and so so zen zen of course is just the japanese (laughs) pronunciation of the sanskrit word which means meditation as in dhyana yoga so Anyway, this sincere young Buddhist went to Japan, uh, China from Japan to visit the masters. And there was, I forget the name, but there was one master who was like the master of masters of, of Buddhism. And when he got to China, he learned
1: that that master had died in a very terrible way. What
0: happened is this master, because he was the master, he had... All kinds of comforts and followers and you know male and female followers and and wealth and everything and and yet he was the master and so some thieves attacked him to steal all this wealth he had and and it was said that even though he was the Buddhist master you know there's no self the body is not the self etc 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 when he you know where the rubber met the road when he actually was attacked like that he was terrified, and he began, he, it, it said that he was shrieking in such mortal fear for his life that, that his screams could be heard a mile away. And so uh, this you know, young Japanese pilgrim thought, something's wrong with this picture, because you know if I'm practicing Buddhism and, and, and the master obviously wasn't there at all, So he went back to Japan and kind of tried to retool everything. And eventually, I think Zen came out of that. But of of course, the lesson here is applicable everywhere. So I would say to you, what was your name?
1: Krishna Kumari.
0: Oh, Krishna Kumari. I've heard of you somehow. Madhavi Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, she's great. (laughs) So um, Prabhupada once said, we should not be foolish utopians. In other words, we're in the material world, and we have to unite, we have to organize if we're gonna change this planet, because the people who are ruining the planet are very organized. We have to do something, and inevitably, when human beings form organizations, especially larger organizations, because in a small organization, everyone knows what everybody else is doing, so you can't get away with too much. But as you start to get a larger scale organization, which is historically necessary, then, you know, people can do things. And and I, I think it's just constant vigilance. We have to constantly be vigilant, constantly weed the social garden. That's the point I wanted to make. Just as there's the garden of your own heart, there's also the collective garden. And we, and, and weeds grow in the society, you know, social weeds and community weeds. And so spiritual life is a constant process of vigilance, of, of <coughs> reaffirming what's right and true. and. At times, when you get sort of an institutionalized corruption, you could say. Uh, then, I mean, the good news is, let's say in Iscon, is that it's not a little banana republic dictator, dictatorship, and and we and that's what I'm doing. I'm speaking out. I'm writing papers, and thousands of people are responding, and so it's not that. Uh, I mean, I mean within. Our Krishna Consciousness movement. There are thousands and thousands of, of really great people. I just got a letter today uh, from this very a girl. Actually, it was sent to me by uh, someone that, that helps me, and, and and she wrote this letter. She's from France, and it was a very touching letter. She had discovered, you know, my little program Krishna West, and my, you know, lower prices may be available on my website. <laughs> but wait. Go call today, and I will throw it anyway. So,
1: <laughs>
0: so she was living in sort of a traditional community where she had, to, you know, wearing dress, and, and, and it was just driving her nuts. And I mean, it doesn't mean that that it drives everybody nuts, but it's just it didn't work for her. You know, she was very sincere. She wanted to be Krishna conscious, but it just totally didn't work for her. And it worked for other people. So it's like you know, free choice or pro choice. So. I <laughs> am um, pro-choice, by the way, when it comes to spiritual styles. So, and also she, she believed that some kinds of presentations we make in public actually may have the opposite effect. And, um, and then she discovered this other way of thinking, which is very faithful to Prabhupada and following the same strict spiritual principles. And yet, you know, opening things up more on an extra level, and it just, she came back to Krishna consciousness. She started chanting Hare Krishna again. She wanted to, she just came back. I mean, she wants to practice the spiritual path again. And so, um, and and frankly, I've gotten thousands of letters like that. So, um, yeah, we have to, fortunately, Prabhupada created Society, spiritual society, in which there is freedom of speech, you know, within reasonable boundaries, even out in the world, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. I mean, there are, you know, there are laws against libel and defamation. I mean, and and so even within, say, America or any so called free society, there are boundaries. There are boundaries. You know, you're a lawyer. So, yeah, go ahead. So I, I think that's it, we, 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 we can't have utopian expectations, but we should push
1: forward. I'm certainly very appreciative of what you do for Krishna West. I've had the pleasure of visiting my God, dear God sister in North Carolina, and I just really love the community. And I have to say, when I'm at the workplace, I don't feel violated at all, because the HR door is right there. When I'm at ISKCON Temple, anything goes. As a single woman coming, anything goes. Well, that's what do question. I do? Yeah.
0: Um, well, I think one second, yeah.
3: so for those of us that don't know about Krishna West, this is a um, it, it's really an integration of ISKCON, which means International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And you mentioned the name Prabhupada, this is your teacher, yes. Prabhupada came here to the Lower East Side in 1965. Sorry
0: for those who didn't know what I was talking about, but um, uh, yeah, sure. so so um, so you're,
3: you're mentioning Krishna West, can you just put that in a little yeah, for us? sure.
0: Um, and thank you very much for everything you said. I
1: um, mean, Thank you for being here, and well, addressing
0: this. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm happy you're here.
1: Um,
0: inevitably, in any spiritual tradition, you find an internal and external part. In other words, there are certain basic, you could say, spiritual practices or certain ideas which are really the core, they're essential, that if you remove those things, you really kind of you lose the tradition philosophically or 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 practice. At the same time there are external things like the way people dress or the kind of musical instruments they use. Because inevitably, like take India as an example. This whole tradition of of Krishna obviously comes from India because Krishna went to India. So um, people in India for thousands of years Mm -hmm. expressed their devotion way people everywhere else in the world express their devotion by singing, by dancing, by cooking, you know, special foods for festivals and for holy offerings, by architecture, designing sacred spaces through architecture. And so anywhere in the world, in any tradition, whenever people are inspired and feel they've found a you know like a sacred truth, they want to celebrate that truth, express that truth. Uh, preserve it through history, through architecture, through music, through food, through dress, and so on and so forth. That's just what humans do. So now here's the issue. What happens is, over time, is that people who are not really paying close attention, they begin to think that those external things, architecture, dress, cuisine, uh, musicology, and so on and so forth, that they forget that these were simply the way, these things are simply the way that a particular historical people expressed their devotion culturally. And they begin to think that that dress, architecture, music, and food is actually kind of baked into the sacred pie. So that actually, God doesn't love people that that don't wear Indian clothes. Or, Or people that don't wear Indian clothes can't love God or that don't wear Thai clothes or, or, or American clothes or, you know, or African. It, it, it just depends on the tradition. And so what history shows and what social science shows, what our own tradition shows, is that I mean, if, if you want to persuade people, if you want to um, establish what you feel is a valuable spiritual tradition, in a particular place. You have to fit in. Fitting in doesn't mean that you compromise or give up essential principles. But there are essential spiritual principles and there are external details like how you dress and, and you kind know, of music you make and, and stuff like that. And so when someone confuses these two categories and thinks that external things on the surface are actually essential spiritual principles, then the, the bar goes too high. And if you are in a, a different country, not the country of origin of this tradition, and you tell people, basically, you have to change every aspect of your life. You have to be re-ethnicized, as I put it, in order to get to God, in, or in order to get to your own soul, which is obviously not true. Uh, then it's just, um, it just it doesn't work. I mean, even Mohammed, for example, instructed his followers that every country you go to, you have to adapt. So for example, if you look at the external culture, the way of, say, dress and mosque architecture and so on in, let's say, Saudi Arabia, and compare it to Turkey, and compare that to Indonesia, you'll find they're very different. So Krishna West is just you know, what it says, that what we're saying is that here's this valuable knowledge, which is not sectarian, this valuable knowledge, this powerful spiritual practice, and we should just give it to people without artificially requiring them to adopt a different external, mundane culture. For example, we wear saffron. Uh, Well, (laughs) you're wearing saffron. (laughs) It's very, well, I wear, sometimes I wear a saffron. I will dress up in saffron for for a certain amount of money, but. (laughs) (laughs) But the the idea is that um, if you look at the lifestyle of mendicants and monks in ancient Asia, they, you know, they walked. They didn't drive, there were no cars, and they, you know, they, the monks would tend to walk wherever they went, and therefore their clothes would get dirty because there was mud, you know, it rains, and so they'd wear a color, it's kind of like an earth color, until then you start to get this saffron color. Or, or for example, there's this, uh, there's this custom of washing people's feet as a sign of great respect. Why? Because if you're walking around barefoot for a few days, you know, your feet are really, really, really in serious need of uh, washing. And especially monks often were older people, and so if you're an older person, and in you know certain uh, you know age-appropriate amount of uh, arthritis, and your feet are really just to bend over and scrub your feet is really it's like it's really hard, and so to get somewhere and have someone scrub your feet, which are really dirty, is a great service. It's like you know if I was in that position, I would be eternally grateful for someone to wash my feet for me at my age. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and so there's just all kinds of customs like that and and, and so all, all I'm saying is that if we really want to see the essence like what is the and what is the minimum like what's the minimum people have to do to get all the spiritual benefits so uh, yes anything else I mean any question please yes
1: please <coughs> I'm referring. <laughs> I'm referring back to um, the Rene Descartes, I think, the I am part of your yes. talk. Yes. I, I just need clarification, actually. I got fuzzy when you were saying that something like um, you also have to focus on the external. Do you remember saying something like that about the, focusing on the external?
0: Oh, I mentioned that there was another powerful current in Europe at the time, which was the re- Sort of the, the blossoming what, science? of science, empirical science, uh-huh. where they say that no, rather than look inside and study consciousness itself, let's study the external world with our senses and, and through uh, instruments that enhance our senses. So there's, and, and that's good because frankly, I mean, I'm very grateful that I live in an age when there is, you know, there are different medical options. And if you know anything about medical practice, I mean, for example, 150 years ago in America, you could just put out a sign and say, I'm a doctor or I'm a brain surgeon. You could just do that. It's like nowadays you can put out a sign and say, I'm a palm reader. So, I mean, back then you could just put out a sign and operate on people and there was was no certificate for a doctor. And I mean, you know, two of my favorite composers, uh, Bach and Handel, at the end of their lives were blinded by this crazy eye doctor who didn't know what he was doing. Actually they're both by the same doctrine. So um, so I'm very grateful for all a lot of the science that's out there. At the same time, if we want metaphysical knowledge, knowledge of the soul and God, you know, you you've gotta look within and, and elsewhere. So anything else? Yes. Um, thank you, Maharaj, for coming. Yeah, thank you for coming.
2: <coughs> In the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna talks about uh, the conception of uh, the divine demoniac in the 16th chapter. Divine, divine and demoniac? Yes. So in there he mentions that the demoniac people do Ugra karma, like horrible works. Now, does that mean simply things that are like you know mass destruction
0: or Monsanto type things, or could it be more subtle? Well, it certainly is Monsanto. It's um I mean for example, I I, I Know about this case because I, I sort of studied a little bit. One of these, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies—forget the name—they uh, came out with a drug, and they knew it would kill a certain, you know, small percentage of people. And they actually calculated. They had their accountants figure out: okay, we'll get fined this much by the government, we'll pay so many penalties, we'll make so much money. Let's go ahead and kill the people. And because of this demonic legal structure where a corporation is a person, if you know Spanish, they would say personaria jurídica. And and, and so where the the idea is that um, the corporation is a person, you can't sue the people, even though human beings sat in a boardroom and decided to kill other people and then actually went ahead and killed them. Because it's a corporation, you can only sue the corporation. So, yeah, there's all kinds of things going on. I mean, I mean, there's all. You know, we don't have to give a a, a, like a long list of all the crazy things going on in the world, militarily, politically, economically. I mean, there's just, yeah.
1: So basically, it means knowingly,
0: knowingly harming other people. And the follow-up is that could you
2: be doing things like over karma? But it would be in theory sanctioned in the Vedas. Like, Such a, as, like for instance, you know, some types of Ugra karma means like
0: terrible work.
2: Like, for instance, animal sacrifice, that's in the Vedas. You know, you, you do certain yakamahomas um, yeah, where you yeah. can sacrifice animals, but in, in the twenty first century that's obviously in Ugra Karma. So yes. where do you draw the distinction between you know works that are beneficial for society, works well, that are not? Well first not of all,
1: first of all
0: what we have to understand is what we call Vedic culture, and for those who may not know what I mean by that, uh, I won't get into the, the whole linguistic issue here, but there is a whole issue, but. Um, <laughs> it means an ancient civilization which based its principles on the ancient Sanskrit literature of the Vedas. First of all, a lot of the stuff you find in Sanskrit literature is not normative, it's descriptive. In other words, it's not saying the way sh- things should be, it's just this is the way it is. And so, for example, in the fourth canto of the Bhagavatam, one of our main texts, you have this scathing <coughs> criticism of animal sacrifice, saying that, you know, it's, 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 it's demonic. So, uh, in this ancient civilization, there were good people and bad people,
1: and it's,
0: it wasn't all perfect. What we're trying to do is specifically apply those things which are appropriate, which are virtuous, and which are really beneficial.
2: Yes. Maharaj, thanks for the presentation. Thank
3: you. How do how do we distinguish between what's cultural and what's spiritual? How do we distinguish between the external things and true, essential,
2: spiritual. Uh, well, I mean, something. You Krishna spirit. consciousness. Yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, something could be spiritual and cultural. When we say spiritual, uh, we're talking about the spirit, the soul. So something which is directly beneficial to the soul. You could say is spiritual. For example, I don't. I, as you can see here, I'm I'm dressed in my sort of my usual preppy. Style, <laughs> and um, so I have to say I don't feel less spiritual. I don't. I wouldn't feel more spiritual if I was wearing robes, because I, to me, uh,
1: if I come here and if I speak sincerely, and
0: you know, not out of vanity or pride, but I'm really trying to help by giving spiritual knowledge, then that's spiritual. And I don't think I'd be more spiritual if I was dressed in. So Prabhupada, I mean, there are basic principles of our bhakti yoga, and Rupa Goswami lists them in the sixth chapter of the Nitro Devotion. So if you don't find something in the list, didn't make the cut. Can I have follow-up? I just want to I forgot I
1: have a question about that. That part of that, your talk, when you were saying that we should... Um, that we should fit in, and that doesn't mean you give up your values. Yes. Did you mean that, um, you know, when in Rome, too, as the Romans do, but, you know. Yeah. The dress, yeah. externally, you fit in, but yeah. in the values yeah.
0: you yeah. make Al que fueras a que vieras, do understand? Yeah. 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 That's how you say it when in Rome in Spanish. Anyway, so, um, okay. in America, let's say, and increasingly in the world, because it's kind of, you know, globalization is really marching on. So you could say, in the modern world, say the way I'm dressed right now. And if any of you want some fashion tips after the world, come and see me privately. But, but the, the way I'm dressed right now, it doesn't. It doesn't say. It doesn't speak to the world that I'm a Democrat or a Republican or a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist or Hare Krishna. It's just I'm just a guy, you know, <laughs> you know, quote unquote respectable guy. So, so to me, if, if you now let's get into a little cultural anthropology here. I think sometimes, uh, you know, we can exaggerate the extent to which. Um, the external culture in America today is just kaleidoscopic, chaotic, and there—you know—there are no standards. And
1: for example, the way I'm dressed right
0: now—I hate to keep talking about the way I'm dressed. But I mean, as you can see, I'm really attached to my preppy look. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, the way I, the way I'm dressed right now—people uh, dress that way, people have dressed this way all my life. I mean, I can remember when I was a little kid, uh, people dressed like this, it was. It's kind of like a neutral, sort of neutral, whatever. It doesn't really say that much about you. And um, you can kind of go anywhere. So I mean, I dress this way because, first of all, because I grew up, like, I grew up in that culture. Uh, and um, so it's natural for me and I feel it doesn't, it doesn't predispose me toward, in other words, it seems to me that if we're trying to help souls, if our mission is to try to help everybody then if I dress a certain way, this is how this is my own thinking. If I dress a certain way, so that it makes it much easier for a certain group in society to relate to me, and makes it kind of more difficult for everybody else. What we find in the Bhagavatam is that that uh, say a Vaishnava, someone who's trying to teach Bhakti Yoga, should be equal to everyone, should be a friend to everyone. And so I just don't understand why I would make it much easier for one little group and more difficult for other people. It, it seems to me
1: that's just the way I think. I'm not saying everybody has to do what I do, but, uh,
0: but that's just the way I see it. I want to, When I go out into the world trying to be a teacher, I want to give everyone a fair shot at, at feeling comfortable with me, at, at, at somehow you know, learning some of this. I want to be equal to everyone. And so to me, as far as, you know, as far as I can figure out the world we're living in,
1: uh, this is kind of neutral. Yeah, and I agree with that, but I was just wondering therefore, um and I know this question comes up a lot too, that and therefore I know there's time, place, and circumstance, but then why was Chiu Papa, for example, insistent that no matter where Okay, yeah, I'll explain that question to those of you who
0: don't have the pleasure of uh, being indoctrinated as we are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is that, um, when
0: our teacher, when our teacher Prabhupada came to America, he landed in 1965 on a cargo boat. It's all the only way to get here. Um, he came when America was just entering an, an extremely anomalous historical period. America before that period of, of the you know, late '60s and early '70s was very different, and is again different. And so, by you know, sort of Krishna with perfect timing, sent Pro at a time when suddenly, for no understanding, you know, there's no clear reason, Americans, especially young Americans became just totally wild about Eastern mysticism. It was all the rage. I mean, the Beatles went to Rishikesh in India, you know, and had a guru, and then, John, and then George Harrison and Paul, uh, George, especially George and John, uh, were chanting Hare Krishna, and George, you know, took very seriously Krishna consciousness and, and became a follower of Prabhupada. And it was just everywhere. I mean, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix put on the cover of an album Uh, You know, a a Hindu painting of the the Virat Rupa, the universal form of Krishna. And so, you know, the the truth is, at that time, the Prabhupada came in terms of reaching young people, because there was this big generation gap. But in terms of reaching young people, this, you know, certain kind of Indian presentation, uh, it worked. Not with everybody, but it, you know, it, it fit in, so to speak. With the Zeitgeist, as they say in Germany, on the spirit of the times. And so, but then the world dramatically changed. The world has dramatically changed. And uh, when people think of India today, they think of very different things. And so, in fact, the uh, I, I know you've been raising your hand there. Somebody finished up here and then... So, in fact, in, in, a, in a paper I wrote recently, I, I quoted the latest academic study, and I hope you won't take that as pejorative that it's an academic study, but I mean, you know, a serious scholarly study of Yoga, Inc., you know, the yoga world, and it showed that, and of course, not here. I mean, here, of course, is a great yoga place.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh,
0: but in terms of around America, not here, but around America, that, that increasingly—I mean, they said like, you know, what are the main reasons people take yoga? And they were like, lose weight, um, you know, have a more sexy body, or this or that. And so, and so, what I mean to say is uh, that—I mean, obviously, there's still a significant number of people that are interested in the spiritual aspect of yoga, and that's why I think the program here is such a great program. But in general, if, if you look at the country in general, uh it could the attitude toward let's say like eastern stuff could be more different. I mean India itself India itself
1: has basically given up you know
0: traditional Indian dress. If you go to any you know serious university in India, you'll have to look high and low to find one person wearing a dodi or sorry. And so it's, um, if you look at the tradition, if you look at great spiritual traditions that survive, uh, they adapt. You know, whether you're a mammal or an insect or a a spiritual movement, if you don't adapt, you go extinct. And the acharyas have always adapted, so I'm trying to follow the tradition by adapting. (laughs) Yeah, back there. Yes.
3: So, and everybody, I just want to let you know this is going to be the, the last question. Sure. And then we can continue. If you have questions for Raj, you can continue speaking, but we'll just go offline. Sure. And we'll serve out the feast in the back. much um, Just real fast, even if you can answer this fast. Um, I've sort of been around you since I was a ch- child. Oh, really? What's your name? Uh, Raj Gopal. My name is V. Matura. Um, i Jack Hurtani. time am pretty not there. Oh. So I just was wondering, because as a person growing up in the movement, and I remember when I was a kid, I, I didn't like to dress you know, in the traditional way. And um, so I would go to the temple, sort of dress normal. And sometimes I felt judged or whatever. Um, and then coming in and out of Krishna consciousness, and then brought back in through philosophy, um, now I'm in a comfortable state of you Krishna know, consciousness. Um, So I was just wondering, since I've followed you or since I've seen you around since I was a kid, where was the realization for you from Krishna West or or the inspiration, at what point in your life did it really, was it like they inspire you to really pass it on?
0: Okay, brief answer. (laughs) Um, Thank you, nice to see you. I was, I would say, absolutely a company man at a certain point in my life, in the sense that um, I lived in, in a bubble. I mean, this is just normal human psychology. If you're part of a community or society, and you only really associate with people in that group, then you develop a certain interesting psychology. In fact, when I applied to get into Harvard, Um, And they said, like, why do you, you know, typical college application, why do you want to go here? And um, I said that I felt that I had become intellectually incestuous. (laughs) In the sense that, um, you know, just living in in a world where I didn't really interact so much with, with the larger world outside. And so then, at a certain point in my life, I began to live, you know, away from communities. I kept my spiritual practice up. And I began to sort of reintegrate. I, I began to to regain my power to look at the Hare Krishna movement objectively, to see it as the world sees it. And I had this, like, this super mega, oh my God moment. And, uh, <laughs> And at the same time, I went back to college. I mean, I, you know that was a long time ago, but I went. I went back I, as it is as a leader, as a so-called guru. I went back to college, and I, and, and I began you know studying religion from that point of view. And again, it, it didn't break my faith and certain principles, and it didn't definitely didn't. I didn't stop my practice, but I began to realize that, well, as Krishna says in the Gita. I mean, in one sense, we are a separate community. Let's let's say let's say those who are spiritual pract- practitioners. And in any tradition, it doesn't matter what tradition we're talking about. You know, typically you form a special community, but at the same time, we're all people. We're all souls, and 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 I think we can exaggerate. We can exaggerate the difference. We can exaggerate how much we're different from everybody else, and forget how much we're the same as everybody else. And and, and if, if we do exaggerate by the way we present ourselves, if we exaggerate the difference, I think we lose our power to reach people communicate with people. They can't identify with us because we don't identify with them. Even Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that he reciprocates. So reciprocity comes from God. And so if we can't identify with people out there, how in the world can they identify with us? If we don't really feel a real bond with them, how can they feel a bond with us? We can't be, we, and, and again, I'm not talking about the Bhakti Center here, which is you know,
1: <laughs>
0: the good guys, but if we, if we, um, we can't, in other words, you can't be successful, and no one can be successful in, in a spiritual institution if the institution basically rejects the world and then just looks for other people that want to reject the world. I mean, obviously, we should reject uh, selfishness, we should reject vanity, we should reject everything that takes us away from our real self, from our real pure self. But, we should, but, but, but you know, everyone out there, they're all souls. And if we see them as souls, they'll start to see themselves as souls. And if we feel a real kinship with them, they'll feel it with us. And so again, I think the Bhakti Center is one of our best programs in the sense of really Setting an example of that, and um, so thank you very much. As they say in Sanskrit, tatsar sarvam janaha," which means that's all, folks. <laughs>